Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Untitled Entertainment's Jennifer Levine, Circle of Confusion's Zach Cox, TCA MGMT's Tracy Christian and Kaplan Starler's Varun Monger about how agents and managers are navigating a post-2020 US TV landscape with the demand for inclusivity and diversity in storytelling never more firmly on the agenda. All as part of C21's Content LA On Demand. C21's Content LA On Demand virtual conference got underway last week with a series of panel discussions and one-on-one interviews exploring how the US television business is evolving in a period of unprecedented change. From the shift to streaming, the challenges of keeping production going during the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement and a move towards more international focused development, these discussions tackle the gamut of issues and opportunities confronting Hollywood right now and the status of US programming on the global stage. Untitled entertainment partner Jennifer Levine, Circle of Confusion literary manager Zach Cox, TCA MGMT President Tracy Christian and Kaplan Starler literary agent Varun Monga spoke to Alta Global Media founder Stephen Adams about how they're navigating the post-2020 US TV landscape with the demand for inclusivity and diversity in storytelling never more firmly on the agenda. Joined by a very strong group of panelists for this US Agents Manager session, which we're going to discuss the state of affairs we find ourselves in in this brave new world of 2021. We have Tracy Christian of TCA MGMT, Zach Cox of Circle of Confusion, Jennifer Levine of Untitled Management, and Varun Monga of Kaplan Staller. Very excited to have all of you guys here. A lot of very smart, interesting people with lots to say. And, uh, you know, I you know, I, I will start by giving the, the high-level view. I think we're all still navigating one of the most difficult and challenging events in recent history. You know, circumstances that are leading to new practices in business in all arenas, and certainly the world of television is no exception. So I want to know how, you know, how you guys are navigating uh, this wonderful new era and how that's impacted the way you're doing business. Let's start with Jennifer. I actually have to say, like, you know, just past getting the second vaccination, like I've started filling up lunches and dinners with clients in May. So, you know, I can count on one hand how many I've seen in the last year in person. Right. So right. I just, it was one of the things I wanted to make sure I did after seeing some important friends and family, but to actually get some in-person time with clients because it feels there's nothing like that in-person thing we've all been through a lot together but in terms of business practices i mean i know something that our company did and i'm sure a lot of other companies did as well is we really embraced the ease of the zoom meeting with other companies you know and i think i think we did about 100 meetings in 2020 company to company meetings between Mm. our team with streamers with big production companies and pods with with studios i mean it was really so everyone was sort of eager to do that and the information flow like it would have taken weeks if not months to schedule most of those meetings you would have done a fraction of those meetings in person but in zoom we were able to power through a bunch of them and it was really great because it also allowed some of the kind of younger managers to get FaceTime with people at the companies they wouldn't necessarily have gotten out to meet um it, so i don't know that's a kind of not a very all-encompassing answer to your question but that's one big positive thing that came out of the last year i felt during covid it must be like what hollywood must have felt like in the 40s with the war effort like we don't like each 
other. We don't blah, 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 but we all have a common enemy, right? We all know what the, the mission is. And I think everyone really banded together, you know, one, how do we feed our audience? How do we properly communicate what's going on in the world of politics and health? Because let's not, it wasn't just COVID. When we think of, of the political changes that were happening, principally in our country and globally, I think Hollywood did a really interesting and a great job of, you know, uh, communicating that and being supportive. Um, and so lots of places, as Jennifer said, that, you know, in order to get on the calendar, it would have taken six months. People were accessible, you know, and you can do more when you don't have to like schlep into your car, you know, uh, drive to Jean George, you just walk into the second bedroom and, you know, you can wear baseball, I mean, basketball shorts, you know, with your, with your dinner jacket. So um, I feel like, you know, we made some really interesting connections. We, some of our younger agents on staff were able to participate in projects that they wouldn't have had access in before. So in that way, and, and actually it was a profitable, you know, year for us. We were very fortunate. We were able to keep everyone on staff. We even opened it, uh, a New York office, but it was tough going. You know, it wasn't easy, but we all pulled through. I think that after that, that kind of initial shock of it all last March, people kind of quickly settled into, or not quickly, but started to settle into the routine of what things look like now. And yeah, that's what you're talking about. Like, there's so many more efficiencies with it where rather than, as you were saying, jump in your car and having to drive around, like you just walk downstairs, put on a pot of coffee, and you start working immediately. And with that comes being so much more productive. I mean, for me, it takes us, uh, my wife and I, we probably spent two, two and a half hours a day in the car commuting to Beverly Hills for work. Whereas you eliminate all that and you're working on behalf of your clients that whole time otherwise, right? And then even for the Zoom meetings and all that, it's like, I'd be shocked if we go back to, you know, schlepping up to like, uh, you know, Warner Brothers on a Tuesday afternoon to sit down with someone where you could just turn on your, your you know, camera and then be done with it in about an hour and get the same kind of connection or at least get a connection. It is, it is a bit different not sitting out with people in person. That part has been a little tough, uh, I would say, that's been, that's been lost. Zach, any thoughts in the same area? I think everybody pretty much hit the nail on the head. I think what's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out going forward, right? I think as Jennifer said, I have started to see clients had the second you know, dose of Moderna. I'm starting to see clients and there's going to be an expectation, I think, of clients for sure that they want to see you. And I'm good with that as the person, the person business. I think we've all lamented that we do miss it to some degree. Um, but how much do we really miss it? Because I don't, I don't, I don't need to be in my car no. stuck in traffic in three o'clock in the afternoon, you know, trying to get to a three thirty meeting. Like I don't, I don't want to, you know, spend an hour to go ten miles. I don't need to. It's not efficient. And so I'm, I am curious where the rubber is going to meet the road over the next six months, let's say. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I not a lot to add other than I want to see how this shakes out in the future. One thing interesting to think about, I don't know if you work with writers, their lives didn't change very much as they remind you, like they're used to being at home in front of the computer and not right. seeing a lot of people. So in some ways, I found the writers adapted very quickly and easily to the new reality of the way they worked. And I think for the most part, the writing business is the only business that really didn't have an interruption. It sort of kept on yep. going all the way through. Obviously, the actors were down, the directors were down for at least a few months. Um, but the writers never stopped. And in fact, 
felt like the demand kind of spiked as because everybody focusing on development because that's all you could do. And I get the sense most of the writers I talk to crave being back in an in-person room when it feels fully safe because you just miss that the nuance of the impromptu ideas and the easy kind of riffing that you do when you're just a little bit more casual with each other. And you're not sort of yeah. like this. The te- even the technology isn't there. Like we're trying to cross talk, right? I think which makes for a more interesting experience and meeting and you can't. So, and that's essentially what a writer's room is. Steve says something, I, you know, riff off of it, somebody else, you know, makes it funny. And that's not Zoom or does Skype even exist anymore? Like, you, you know, <laughs> I know, they had the world by the tail and they just let it go. So, um, you know, I wanted to also ask about, you know, the, the absence of TV markets and, and, and festivals. Did anybody miss those or did you try to, what was your experience like with the virtual uh, versions of those? Well, I mean, we have to have our festivals. Right, like <laughs> <laughs> the only one I actively did was virtual Sundance. I don't see one I did for multiple reasons. I had a client with a film in the festival, and I really wanted to support and try. And it was, it was. I mean, it, it worked. And I hats off to all the programmers and the filmmakers. I mean, everyone really pulled something together. I, in terms of the markets. You know, I, I'm less so from my perspective that I've done that, but I, I think the agencies in particular are pretty adept at sort of getting people to zoom in on something special that they need to sell or tease them with. Right? Um, and I bet they'll use this format going into the future to sell into the markets. Yeah, the markets are in danger because with this new efficiency, as Jennifer was saying, um, it, 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 can, it can cost $20,000 to schlep two agents out to a film market. And there's just, you just don't have to do it any longer. Yeah. Although the communal experience of seeing a film with other people, you can't duplicate that. I mean, that's, no, that, was the, that was the hard part of doing the Sundance experience. I mean, you did your best. I had text chains going with friends. We were all watching the same movie, trying to kind of feel that feeling of reacting to things, but um, it's not the same. And I, it, I think we're meant to experience festivals in a, you know, in an interactive way. So hopefully we'll be, hopefully back in all our glory. I know there's sort of some hybrid stuff coming up with Tribeca and let's see what Can does. I mean, again, I'm thinking film, not television. So <clears throat> markets are... MIPCOM, MIPCOM, MIPTV, I mean, all these things would be live again. And, and certainly, you know, relationships are definitely enhanced by being in person. But I want, I want to switch gears now and talk about uh, taste. You know, we saw this shift, this quick, this overnight shift in, in culture. How was that reflected in, in what, what buyers were, were, were looking for suddenly? I know that we, we dropped a lot of our darker projects and people weren't interested in hearing about, you know, uh, dystopian worlds. But uh, Varun, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, you know, 2020 was a strange year in that there was so much going on between Black Lives Matter and the pandemic and everything happening where I think people for a bit were kind of lost as to what the market wanted. And a lot of times when we were pitching projects, outlet stuff, the feedback we get is, well, we want to wait for this to happen, or we want to wait till the election's over, whatever it was, to really get a sense of what they want to do. And now that things have, I guess you could say, kind of settled in a way, it is a lot of what you're just what you were just saying. It's there's the, the majority of feedback we get is we want blue sky stuff. We don't want stuff that's too serious. We had a lot of projects that were being put together, packaged with great elements that dealt with, you know, some of the stuff you saw with Trumpism or, uh, you know, kind of like stuff trending on what happened with Capitol riots, things like that. 
And most of those things, we couldn't even get networks and streamers to hear those pitches. They'd fly out and say, this is a great idea. We like it, but we don't want to touch anything like that because we don't know. We don't think there's an audience for it. So, yeah, it's kind of seems to be blue skies is what people want right now. Anyone else? Any other thoughts about that? I certainly get the same thing. And I, I, I and in a way, I, 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 I worry because... You know, you mentioned something that's very important, which is that, you know, these are cultural trends that are not light. You know, these are, when you talk about the, the, the riots on Capitol Hill, that's a deep-seated American root, and it has a lot of complex reasons. It's not like it was an, it's an isolated incident. So ignoring it through the media or through our, our kind of media is a, a little bit dangerous. I think we do need to betray it. I wish somebody would take on some of these things and really explore the mindset of these people and the history of these things. I think it's well, important. I mean, and I think the cure to that is we've been seeing for some time the rise of the documentary or the doc series, mm-hmm. and that is continued. And so specifically, too, with diverse populations, there's a real appetite at networks to have like a diverse person, a thought leader come in with a provocative notion and examine, you know, our society. And we've you know, been fortunate to sell a few of those. But I I think while on the scripted side, maybe networks are saying blue skies, half hour, the country needs to repair itself and heal, there's a newfound respect for, um, I I call it, I don't want to say women because I don't know that that's entirely true, but but definitely stories from people of color and, um, and a willingness to try, right? Like I definitely feel like networks and it's like a creaky old man leaning in you know he's not leaning in too far but he's making the gesture you know so if if you're a person of color and you have this and you have a story and it's not entirely blue sky i i think you can still get meetings right if you're a 50 year old straight white guy no that's not going to sell dollar you know right a half hour but you know if you're a 30 year old uh you know southeast asian woman uh, with, you know, gritty kind of hard hitting something, you have a chance. And I, that's never been the case before, you know? I agree. I, think that, I was going to say, I mean, I think that is right where you say that kind of creaky old guy kind of leaning in, wanting to hear about it or say they want to hear about it. But there is still that reluctance, I think, to fully dive in where I ran into this a couple of times just in the past few months where they'll say, okay, this is what we want. This is the story we want. Give us this. They'll go down the line with the specific writer you give them that piece and then they say, well, this is right. You did you did what we asked, but we don't know what the audience is for this, actually. Mm-hmm. This specifically was with a Native American uh, writer I represent. And it was a little frustrating. You know? It was a piece that dealt with crime and things like that. But it was a true story based on his family's experience. Um, and another kind of fascinating thing was a lot of people, a lot of producers, when we took it out, were reluctant to dive in because they'd say, well, yeah, it's a good story, but we don't know that we want to tell that experience through the lens of crime. Which I found fascinating because it was an authentic piece. It was written by a Native writer telling that story. He chose to tell that story about his experience, right? So I think that there is still that that kind of hesitation to figure out how exactly they're going to do it. IP is still king and queen. Mm-hmm. I think that if you yeah, having strong underlying material, whether it's a book, a short story, a format, a remake of something, I mean, that still seems to be very important in most buyer conversations. It certainly helps wake them up and focus 
to a place where something original feels like a mountain that a lot of them just don't want to climb still. Right. So, but, but let's go back to this diversity question. I mean, it is the buzzword of, of the day of the era in not just Hollywood, but all over the world. And uh, how, I mean, are we, are we as an industry, are we just virtue signaling? I mean, how, how seriously can we take this moment? I mean, I, you know, your example, Varun, is a little disheartening that people say they want these things, but then when presented with the opportunity, shy away from it. I mean, what's, what, what, is, what is everybody's experience here across the board? Mirrors Varun. It's, it, it's like a, you know, diverse content is um, a dish that you want to try. And really, and literally people are like, well, how do I eat that? And you're like, well, you just pick up your fork and you do Well, <laughs> do I eat the seeds? Do, do I peel it first? But no, eat it like everything else. Are you sure? You know, like you can cancel it, right? Like you buy stuff from white people all the time that doesn't do well. And what do you do? You cancel it. That's what you would do with this too, right? So you kind of have to, you know, walk them down the path. Like it's okay. It's okay. Um, but there's, there's always been that pressure on the exception to be an extraordinary hit out of the box. I mean, that's always been the pressure. Someone who is not the quote unquote norm, you've got to perform really well so that they can open the door for everybody else. Is that still what you're seeing now? Of course. I think a lot of execs are still holding on to that, right? That mentality that they're going to find the next walking dead. Well, it's not, we live in segmented audiences. We have more choices for content, particularly series, than ever before. So the idea that you're going to program from any writer, creator, whatever, showrunner, uh, the next Walking Dead is just not going to, it's not reality. And if you happen to, hey, good on you. But I, I think you still have these execs that are like, is it too niche? Is it this? Am I, a lot of people are virtuous, virtue signaling as you ask, 100%. I actually think though more, um, there's, I mean, there's, I don't want to use the word authentic because it's overused, but as Tracy said, like there are people mm-hmm. taking chances on things that mm-hmm. might not have broken through. I know a colleague just set up a, a client's book of poetry, right? Out of Bayer, right? And it's, it's, oh. It's a, a young black female writer, and they're going to develop it into a show. And that I don't know would have happened at all in the last, mm-hmm. you know, before this last year, two years. I mean, it feels like there's at least um, a hunger to not miss the moment. And mm-hmm. it's, I think, on the responsibility of both representatives and artists to then execute the content to a place where it's undeniable, you know, because to keep that hunger high, you've got to keep the, hit, the hits coming. I, no, I think you're exactly right. I just think there's a lot of coded language that still occurs. But you're right. The, people are getting more opportunities than ever before. But you still hear, like, Maroon and I were sharing some more stories the other day where I got a pass on a client's uh, script. But by the way, we ended up with a couple offers, so it was all good. But from a specific fire, I heard, well, that's too much like a show that was from a writer of completely different origin, different religion, different country, different everything. But they were like, oh, well, we already have this, so we don't need that. And so I still think you're right. There is more opportunity, but I think we're still figuring it out. I think some executives are stuck in the past. Well, that's I guess that's the next question. I mean, how how diverse are we seeing? How much diversity are we seeing in these executive suites now? Is there really a big change as much as as much as people? are saying there is or is that are we still dealing with the same sort of mindset that collectively has led us to this moment there's an attempt and um there is recruitment but as we all know the people who have the power to actually buy those people don't look like me and that's where the change really needs to happen and look and it's it's you know, I think you start that off by, yeah, you hire some great junior executives or creative executives and they move up the ladder and they learn the business, et cetera. But what companies have to learn how to do is 
not only nurture those voices that are attempting attempting to come into the network, but making it a supportive place for women and executives of color. You know, you and I talk about it all the time. Like when we came into the business, like we were raised by wolves and, you know, some of the the atrocities, (laughs) right. The the things that I hear about people, you know, getting sued for, I'm like, really? I didn't even know that's illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then the generation before us had it even worse than. There really wasn't much of a generation before us. I mean, you're talking about agents and managers. That's just now being addressed. I mean, I, I mean, let's. I mean, the integration of agencies is still way behind, frankly. Right. I mean, right. You know, I'm just going to shut my mouth because you know my story. Well, I'm like, you can say whatever you want. I'm being triggered. Triggered. <laughs> 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 stories coming back. Also, <laughs> the PTSD of it all. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But no, you're right. I mean, a lot has changed in the last 20 plus years, and it's it's for the better. But it's certainly it's certainly not. I don't think it's good enough. No, but certain places, I mean, you do feel it. Like you see them making an effort. And, um, you know, and I had calls from, you know, different agencies and production companies, you know, people who are friends of mine saying, okay, I hope I don't sound, you know, I hope I'm not doing the wrong thing politically. I don't know what to do. So I just, I need some black executives. Where do I find them, Tracy? I needed a person who can do this, that, and the other. And they didn't really know what to do. But I gave them credit for doing something, you know, not just sitting on their hands. And I'm like, hey, I'm here to help, right? I'm here it's to help. Very, very easy to poo poo people's efforts if it's, you know, because it is, you are addressing something that is, you know, uh, in an industry that's over 100 years old that is finally seeing itself and looking at this opportunity. Because it is an opportunity. There's money in this. That's the best part about it. Is that there's money to be made by embracing all these other new areas. And speaking of money, let's talk about the end of packaging and how that's impacted things. That was the surprise, one of the surprises, early surprises of the pandemic that that started being resolved. Uh, Agents, want to comment on that? No, I don't. I mean, I mean, WME just issued their IPO, right? And like, like. And then what is there to say, right? Like they change, they've on the one hand, I think from the standpoint of a showrunner and packaging fees and, and this sort of thing, I think that's good. But also if you look at the actual deals that a lot of these places cut, it's like MFN. It's like, well, if this other company has this, then we get it too. And then it, it, it's a little bit of a slippery slope. Don't make no mistake. I think that was the right fight, and I understand why they did it. Uh, the writers fully support not taking money out of your own show to give your agency. Totally get that, but I but I don't know that uh, I don't know that the posturing in the marketplace is uh, honest. Hmm. Care to elaborate a bit more? I'm, I'm... I don't. I know it's, it's just it's it's impossible to see where where it's all gonna go. But make no mistake, if these are giant com- companies owned by giant billion dollar corporations, they're gonna find a way to make money that isn't the ten percent business. You know, you, the majority of the people speaking here for the most part are in the ten percent business. Um, I'm not in the issuing an IPO business, so well, it's just a different it's a it's a different mentality. I, I think you need somebody 
who comes from that uh, environment to really speak and elaborate on it. But uh, all I'm saying is, I think uh, it's it's a it's a small victory, but they're still going to be owning content. They're still going to be eventually distributing content in a more direct way. Um, you know, we'll see. It's all part of an evolving industry. Yes, it's true. And agents, agents were are some agencies were already foregoing uh, packaging fees in certain instances. Where it was more profitable staying in the back end in streaming, depending on the streamer, was more profitable to, get, to actually take the 10% from the showrunner and the director and the whatever, you know. So, it, 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 again, I understand the fight. I completely understand not taking money out of your showrunner's coffers, but I, I think it might have been a fight that should have happened 50 years ago. <laughs> Good luck with that. It was the Mad Men era. That, that's when pe- nobody knew anything about business except those who were conducting it. Oh, right. correct. Right. Right. Huh? The yeah, it's a different different world. Maroon, uh, you're, you're at an agency. Any thoughts there? For us, it's a little different. Kaplan Stoller was one of the first people that signed the code, but also it's it's a bit of a different kind of agency. It's very focused on just writers and directors. And I think it's always operated, you know, I've only been here for about a year and a half, but it's always operated under this theory that you do what's best for the clients as it should be, and you simply represent their interests think that part of this fight and hopefully some of the good that's come out of this fight that went on for, you know, whatever it was, almost two years, is that reps will go back to that line of thinking. Like, you're an agent, you represent your client. That's what you should be doing. Representing the client's best interest. I had heard so many stories from my good friends at other agencies about, well, you know, I'm not closing this deal right now because we haven't gotten our packaging fee or our third packaging fee or whatever. When I hear that, it was mind-blowing to me. Where it's like, but the deal's on the table for your client to, you know, get this show going, whatever it is. And they're purposely holding up these projects to get that packaging fee. So I hope that some of that will be gone with what's happened, you know, to what Zach's saying. Like, hopefully some of those, you know, some, some of what's happened in past years will fix that or they'll at least think twice for being do stuff like that. But for uh, our company in particular, it was never much of an issue. Yeah, I think the, the beneficiaries in some ways were the boutique literary agencies and mm. the manager companies because a lot of writers who had never had a manager before you know, maybe spent a few months doing it on their own one way or another and, and realized it can be a little tricky to navigate a complex, layered, tentacled agent business like ours by yourself. And so I do. I found a lot of really exciting writers came onto the marketplace who wanted to be supported and a lot of them had never had a manager before didn't really understand what that could be like different from the relationship with an agent we always come back to that this is definitely a relationship business Mm -hmm. you know i I think that you know and also there's it's interesting as we're mentioning clients i mean clients have clients have evolved i think that the kind of information the kind of the kind of sophistication that you're seeing in people now is very different from a generation ago where people are really serious about being able to produce or directors. I mean, people are very much have grasped the levers of the business in a way that wasn't really the case a few generations ago when these practices were started, where people were happy to let it all go. And now people really embrace it as part of the way they do things. How does that impact the way you do business with your clients who come in with this kind of, you know, uh, this level of sophistication? It's wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Look, I, I, I love a client who um, is, Hey, let me know. I don't, I don't have the the fortitude to, you know, to hear the back and forth. Let me know when we're at take it or leave it. And I love and welcome the person who's a true teammate and we can brainstorm together and powwow. Like, you know, what can this experience be for you? What should this opportunity look like? 
what ultimately is going to move your production company or you to, you know, to the next level, that's <clears throat> fabulous, you know, because you have another educated, creative partner, you know, within, within the deal. It's a fa- fabulous experience. I challenge, I challenge every new client to be their biggest advocate. Yeah. I'm going to fight for you. It's my job. But make no mistake, this is a team. You have me, you potentially have an agent, a lawyer, potentially, you know, depending on the level of the client, obviously, whatnot. But I tell I tell them straight out. I tell every new client, nobody will be a bigger advocate for you than you. I thought it was really exciting to see happen was how writers were helping other writers. All yep. the boosting that was going on on the Twitter feeds, you know, it, it was really, I think it was empowering for creatives to feel like they had a community in a way that it was a really competitive, challenging business. And, and especially writers who are often a bit isolated unless they're in writer's rooms, you don't necessarily always feel communal. Mm-hmm. And yet there was all of a sudden these layers of people reaching their hands out to help others. And I thought that was really amazing to see. And I think it helped those who felt a little standoffish of reaching out to producers or executives directly kind of got over that and it was met for the most part really positively on the other end that people were really happy to hear directly from an artist and it's just how you then work together with a rep whether you have just a manager just an agent or both to share the information and strategically handle it that's where potentially the artists don't have all of the information of the playing field where a good rep can then take that bit of interest that casual chat an artist had with a, with a buyer with a producer pal and turn it into a business opportunity with them and for them <laughs> And that can that can happen in a week. Sometimes it takes a few years, but it does happen. Yeah. The more educated they are about the process, the more they can be of assistance. There was a really fast learning curve over these last couple of years. And I think a lot of writers really, writers especially, really kind of embraced it and had fun with it and felt, you know, inspired by taking a bit of their own destiny in their hands. Absolutely. So, you know, there was a, you know, a few years ago, there was a talk about how unsustainable peak television was and that we're going to, the bubble's going to burst and we're going to find ourselves with a smaller amount of television. And in fact, we've seen the exact opposite. I mean, the so-called streaming wars are pushing people to fill up all sorts of networks and they've been accelerated by this pandemic. I mean, how has this moment affected the way you, you're doing business? What kind of deals are you seeing and, and what's what's happening for you guys? I feel like more deals, but for less money. You know, as Zach was saying, the really segmented audiences. Look, I say that, but like, does Dick Wolf know that people aren't getting 22 episodes anymore? <laughs> you know, does Donald Belisario? They're like, what? That changed? You don't just, <laughs> you know, you just don't walk into NBC and tell them what they're programming? Uh, so you guys have it like that and some do not <laughs> right right does john wells know that so it certainly depends on uh who the client is but look i enjoy it i i it's an opportunity for more voices it's an opportunity for uniqueness um i love what's happening in television and what i find so interesting is you know i i, I think i know everything that's on obviously i don't watch everything but then I'll go to my mom's house and I'm like, what is this? What is this show that you're watching? Like, I've never even, what? You know, um, and that's fun. Yeah, she's got a different algorithm than you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. 
Completely. But that's really, that's got to be fun for the viewer to be their own program. Yeah. I, I love how international the audiences are now and how, my parents watching tons of subtitled series, right? Mora, Chowda, and Schlissel and all those. I mean, they just eat them up and they're all doing it now. And I, it's fantastic. This is to me one of the greatest things that has come out of this, this yeah. moment is that, you know, we've gotten... Americans to watch things that we that we were told forever that they would not. Subtitles were for small New York style movie houses where people went and drank coffee and you know had pretentious conversations afterwards. And now people are you know addicted to money heist. They're addicted to Lupin. They can't get enough. I think what, what's interesting about this conversation is you could almost rewind it back to what we were talking about earlier. Though. If it's a good piece of material, no matter where it's coming from in the world, it finds an audience, right? Yeah. It's a good piece of material to find that audience. And what's happening now is great. It's like I have the same case where it's like my mom will, by the way, they barely understand what I still do even. And they'll say, oh, I'm watching this German show. Or I'm watching this show out of, you know, wherever. And it's it's fun. It makes our jobs more fun. Too. Noir. <laughs> well, also in terms of representing voices, right? If, if, mm-hmm. I'm representing artists from around the world. And I, I represent a bunch. It's so thrilling to finally feel like the marketplace for their shows is just growing and thriving and bilingual shows. I mean, that's, yeah, right. I, it's really, really exciting to see, you know, clients developing with Amazon Japan and Amazon, mm-hmm. and Amazon Latin America and Netflix. And it just, it's really thrilling. And Apple, Apple, just they're all the streamers, especially, have really hit the global voices and the global shows. And they can come from anywhere, right? Some of the artists live here, some of them live in other countries, but the storytelling and the stories are allowed to be their best selves because they don't have to be done or subtitled or turned into something spoken in English when it's really set in another country. So. Right. And, that, and the, the fact that they're, you know, as you, to use the word you used earlier, the fact that they're authentically from another culture is part of the attraction. Mm-hmm. We don't need to Americanize them. We don't need to hide those differences. It's exciting when you don't know what everybody's gestures mean, what, you know, what, what the body language means, what, what, the, what, the, what the communal understanding is. It's great to discover that because we don't live in every single culture. And I think it goes back to our, our, our point. The audience, in a way, is making the demand for diversity, the case for the demand for diversity, very easy. You know, if you pay attention to what they've been able to do in a short... This is not even a 10-year-old phenom that we're talking about. This is like basically five years, you know. Money Heist was an acquisition by Netflix that slept on the network for a year, found its own audience, and then exploded, and then became what it is. But it, the audience made that happen. And that's 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 what's interesting. I think is is the power of of the viewer now. I don't think they may even realize quite how significant their taste and their shift in taste are in terms of what we're doing here. How important is star power now? You know, given the given the moment that we're talking about, and uh, that's you know, everybody always still loves a star. But uh, what does that mean in this era? I mean, can we make stars anymore? Or how important are they? Does what does even the very nature of that uh, mean at this point? I think everyone loves to have a star attached to hedge their bet. And if something isn't successful, Mm. if you're an executive, I think it also helps you keep your job, right? Everybody, (laughs) you know, if you sell something and, you know, it's not successful, but you got Reese Witherspoon in it or it came from, you know, Denver and Delilah or whatever, everybody understands why you took a chance on, you know, Beth and Charlize, right? Um, So yeah, stars are still very important. However, the thing that's great is I don't think there's this over, there was a a point where everything had to have a star attachment, everything. And that I feel like has changed. I think Jennifer said it. 
also. Like there's the traditional Will Smith and big names, right? But there's also IP being the star. And a lot of times nowadays, it's the Marvel movie. It's not the, you know, Paul Rudd movie. It's Marvel's next Ant-Man or it's Scarlett Johansson. Who happens to be a bigger star than probably Paul is. But, you know, from a box office standpoint... But again, the IP oftentimes is like Shadow and Bone, Fifty Shades of Grey. I could, I mean, to cast Jamie Dornan, they almost cast, uh, was it before uh, Charlie Hunnam? We've all heard of the packages with fancy actors and filmmakers attached, not selling too. It's not a sure thing. I mean, you really, it, it definitely, what I find if it's the right level talent, it gets you the decision makers in the Zoom, right? That, that can be important for creating a level of um, hunger for the show if you've got you know, all it takes is one of those to go well and then everyone else who's on the fence might have a chance of tipping them over so if you don't have to wait for a lot of layers just to lean in so getting that upper level talent but they're hard to get right they getting someone to attach to a pitch is not easy because understandably People really prefer to read a script, and if they have to attach to a pitch, it's just, you know, how far they will, are the actors or filmmakers, because filmmakers are, I think, can be equally as valuable attachment if it's the right filmmaker on the right show. So nothing is bulletproof, but it it makes for a noisier conversation. To me, it's been fascinating to watch how the TV business has become very much like what the feature business was forever, where over the past maybe five, six years, it is not always, but a lot of times everyone's going for the those massive names, Reese, whatever it is, to attach to give it that best shot to sell. But I remember even like four or five years ago, I can't remember what the show was, but there's something where they wanted a pretty significant pilot director of ours who'd done a lot of pilots. And someone at the studio wanted to attach P.T. Anderson, who I don't still think is directed a pilot or something. And it was like chasing after that massive name. Ultimately, our guy ended up just kind of passing, but taking those shots at those super high level names has probably not been something that's always been the case in, in the TV business until slightly more recently. We do tend to inadvertently recycle all sorts of trends. I mean, this has been a business that kind of has repeated itself several times already. So we 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 are, you know, storytelling is right. It's it's at the core. It will always be uh, what we're looking for by the fireside or whatever that equivalent will be. Jennifer Levine, Zach Cox, Tracy Christian and Varen Monger speaking with Stephen Adams as part of C21's Content LA On Demand. Video versions of all the sessions are available on c21media.net if you're a pro subscriber and there'll be more from the event in the podcast next week. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.